Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page ad-free. Who took the bomb? You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're debating the merits of a band we rarely ever talk about, KISS. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Plus, we'll pay tribute to the late great drummer Sam Lay, but first, a review of the debut studio album by Amber Mark. It is very red, but baby, it does exist. And when you find a love, you realize it comes within. That's what gives a... That is a little bit of the track Most Men from Amber Mark's first full studio album, Three Dimensions Deep. Uh, fascinating artist, Greg, born in Tennessee to a uh, Jamaican dad and a German mother, wound up another one of those. It seems like we've been talking about this a lot with songwriters. Uh, uh, world travelers yeah, right. as a kid, right? Um, spends time in Germany, spends time in Miami and New York, and then India, where her mom goes to uh, study at a monastery. Amber Mark uh, winds up based in New York and begins by releasing several singles and uh, floating tracks on the net and an EP inspired by the death of her mother. We've been waiting three years for a actual album from Ms. Mark, and now here it is, a sort of cosmic contemplation <laughs> on love, three dimensions deep. Uh, let's play a track, and then we'll give our opinions on this album. This is a song called What It Is by Amber Mark on Sound Opinions. Feel it in my bones, I've got to go. That's what it is from Amber Mark's debut album, Three Dimensions Deep. Uh, as you mentioned, Jim, uh, long in the making, a lot of people have been anticipating a record from Amber Mark. She's got uh, a lot of accolades for those two EPs. Since the last EP, she's uh, been experimenting, uh, doing cover cover versions of songs uh, by Nirvana, Cisco, <laughs> yeah. kind of opening opening up her, uh, her songwriting portals, so to speak. It, it's sort of a an attempt to sort of loosen up her style. She felt like she was being almost like uh, self-restricting herself uh, in, in her earlier songwriting and mm. wanted to loosen up a bit. So what does she come back with? A three-part uh, concept album as her <laughs> <Yeah>. debut album. <laughs> with all, as you mentioned, this sort of a cosmic imagery sprinkled throughout. I was um, waiting I was waiting for your uh, snide chuckle because I know you're anti-astrology. Uh, well, I'm, a, not, I'm not big on astrology. <laughs> and I guess you could, you, you know, the Afrofuturist vibe, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in oh, that, obviously. That. That's yeah. incredible. 
But, uh, you know, some of the metaphors are a bit strained here. You know, the, the, a lot of people are pointing to the song Dark Side. You know, it is just sprinkled with howlers. But then the yep. force is strong when I'm skywalking by your solar system. The force is strong when I'm skywalking by your solar system. It's easy to focus on the stuff that you think isn't so good because... I, it, most of this album is, is actually very ambitious and well executed. Uh, Amber is um, not only a, a songwriter, but uh, produces more than half the tracks or engineers them. Yeah. Uh, so she's very involved in the way this record sounds. And she's experimenting with everything from, uh, you know, uh, soulful R&B uh, pop funk. You know, Dark Side maybe lyrically isn't that great, but, you know, it's a nice Prince uh homage as a well nice you know Prince riff yes. and uh you know that a uh, little bit of house and fomo retro mm-hmm. funk and foreign things i mean she's uh, you know one of the tracks that really uh captured me was on and on the way she's contrasting those big drums with that beautiful string orchestration on that track and then layering the wordless vocals throughout so she's uh, masterful at, at yeah. the way she's using her voice layering her voice uh, experimenting with these different styles. You know, with with that middle cosmology section, she sort of loses me a little bit. But she's basically, you know, talking about, uh, you know, th- th- this is a record about, uh, you know, self-improvement. And at the end, she comes out looking a little brighter about the whole world, going through these romantic travails, little sidestep with the cosmic stuff. But overall, I think this is a, a very promising debut album from this artist. Well, you know, I'm the one who wrote a book about psychedelic rock. So uh, to see a romantic love in terms of universal cosmology, <laughs> okay, I can put up with a little of that. There are only a few missteps here, Greg. Uh, Bubbles, I think, where she does this kind of dance hall thing. But this is an album that is designed to be a mainstream pop album, but with these subversive Mm -hmm. touches. That track that we uh, played, What It Is, the last 30 seconds erupting into this Eddie Hazel, funkadelic, you know, guitar solo, man, psychedelic funk. You know, there's times where she's dropping in these analog synth scribbles that could uh, would not sound out of place on a can record. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, she has a great ear and she's she's working with a couple of really good producers, uh, folks who've worked with The Weeknd, but she's clearly the master of her own sonic stew. And if you are listening in the background while you're doing the dishes, <laughs> cooking dinner, the first two times I listened, um, you know, you, you would say, this is this is a good pop record. Strong voice, mm-hmm. a little too long, 17 songs, and a little hippy-dippy at points. But the closer you listen, it does reward you. And I go back to our ace producer, Alex Claiborne, did a uh, Hooked on Sonics with Amber. She chose a Michael Jackson uh, track from uh, Off the Wall. Okay. Now, you know, Michael Jackson. Who well was, before uh, she was born. Well before she was born. But, of course, that is the masterpiece, not Thriller. Right. You know, she chose well. And as Jackson was a pop omnivore listening to everything that he basically brought into dance pop, that's what Amber is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I, I think this is a brilliant pop album, and I think it's em- emblematic. A lot of the pop records we've been reviewing in the last year and a half have sort of been so eclectic and so genre-less, yeah. you know, in, in the way they approach. And it's an exciting development in the way pop music is being crafted these days. Uh, you know, Jim and I both uh, kind of dig that Amber Mark record. So yeah. uh, now we want to hear from you. 
Let us know on our Facebook group or in our Patreon community what you thought. And leave a voice message on our website as well, soundopinions.org, so we can play it on the show. Coming up, we ponder at the age-old question, is KISS any good? That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we are back. This week, we're begrudgingly putting on the platform boots and uh, breathing fire to discuss a band we, uh, I think we swore, Greg, silently, but it was understood that we would never talk about Kiss. Yeah, Kiss-free zone. Opinions. Yeah. But, uh, but something happened. A friend of the show wrote a really good piece. <laughs> he did indeed. Uh, joining us to talk about the band is author, professor, and friend Sam Weller. We had Sam on the show last fall where we chatted about what makes a great spooky ghost song and his work as Ray Bradbury's official biographer. And now we have him back uh, to talk about Kiss. Let's jump into that conversation. All right. So Sam spent the summer, like the entire summer, like way too many hours that I even want to think about writing this epic it, it's got to be like 30,000 words. A Kiss Army loyalist on how Kiss transformed his life and how the band should end it all. So Sam is, uh, is a Kiss super fan. And I got this wrong. I thought I was younger than you, but you're three years younger than me. And, I, and it, Greg Cotton and I have talked about Kiss in the past in the form of one sentence dismissively and said we were just the wrong age. It didn't grab us. Uh, you, certainly, you didn't change our minds, but we thought we've <laughs> gone, uh, you know, like 850 episodes of Sound Opinions. We've never had a discussion with Kiss. Lord knows we wouldn't want to talk to them, but uh, to try to explain the phenomenon of KISS, we thought we'd have you back, Professor Sam, to uh, educate us on KISS. Oh, where does one begin even attempting to explain the phenomenon of KISS? Well, you began, I, I think you began in the only way that KISS should be written about, which was as part memoir. About yeah. growing up yeah. and discovering this band at the tender age of eight or nine, mm-hmm. right, in Minnesota. So start with how you became a fan and why, even as a professor of literature right. and as a music lover, you're, you're not ashamed to still admit that there are Kiss things you like. Yeah, Kiss Alive came out September 10th, 1975, I believe. He knows the date. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never forget your date. You know, your girlfriend's you know, day, you know, yeah, birthday yeah. And, and, you know, when your, Kiss Alive, when came, Kiss out. Alive came out. <laughs> I moved to Minnesota in 1976 from California. So I grew up on a diet of the Beach Boys, mm. you know, so I grew up really loving pop music and, mm. and harmony and, and, and Minnesota was, was paramount in, in that shift in that I was in, I'll never forget the day in my fourth grade classroom when a bunch of kids were gathered in the back by a table looking at something and I had no friends. I had long, blonde California hair, and I, I didn't know anybody. And I walked back, and I'm, what are you all looking at? Mm-hmm. And they're all looking at this, this gatefold double live album, you know, with handwritten letters by each band member. I mean, there, there's a monkey's aspect to it. There's a super heroic aspect yeah. to it. The, the kids were just 
salivating over. And I, I, I had heard, I'd never heard of them. I'd never heard anything by them. Mm. And I, my curiosity was peaked, but not peaked enough to listen to it yet. Um, <laughs> at some point I told my brother who was four years older than me and missed the kiss window. I think you're absolutely correct. And there's I think about, yeah, you gotta have you know, to be a certain age. I think there's certain, there's a certain age that you, we gravitate towards a certain cadre of cartoons as well. And so I was in that kiss window and my older brother wasn't, but he he has always been very into music and knowledgeable. And I said, uh, do you know about Kiss? He said, sure. I said, what album should I get? And he said, Kiss Destroyer. It just came out. Mm. So I went and picked that up at the Ridgedale Mall in Wyzetta, Minnesota. <laughs> um, and was perplexed initially by the armada of guitars in Detroit Rock City. Yeah. Not, it was not the Beach Boys. But I think the cover of that album is straight torn out of comic books. Mm -hmm. They're super yeah. heroic. They're yeah. spandex clad, yeah. makeup clad, superheroes. The next album I bought was Kiss Alive, which I will maintain and I will go to the mat to the brilliance of that album. And I, I think many people would argue that Kiss Alive is one of the preeminent live record albums ever made. Now, of course, we can say it's not completely live. Well, no. but what <laughs> is? Neither is not, Peter Frampton. Not Frank even close to completely live. I know. There's a lot of touch-up. But yeah. their argument is you spit blood, you breathe fire, you run around, you play guitar in a confetti storm and not have to do studio mm, over But that is just a slippery <laughs> slope, Sam. Yeah. I hear your... your your argument there, but I think what had eluded Kiss previously on their first three studio albums prior to releasing Kiss Alive was capturing their live energy. And Kiss Alive, whether it's replete with studio overdubbing and, and Eddie Kramer production mm -hmm. uh, magician work, uh, it, it captures Kiss Live because they went into the studio probably and recorded a lot of it, as you're, you're saying, yeah. but they played it like they played it on stage. Mm. So the solos are, are elongated and there's a, there's a much more elevated energy to that album. You know, that's the album that I would give any, you know, in their entire catalog. Mm -hmm. That's the album I would hand anybody to try to convert them. So here's the thing, uh, and I and I hear you, I hear you on those uh, the, the the connection there because I, I I was just I was just a touch too old to be moved by it. And I like we sneered at the kid, you know, the the, right. the little guy who bought the the Kiss record. Oh, that that's for little kids, you know. I'm a, a sophisticated teenager by this point, or whatever, or thought I was. And and that the point being, all right, these are dumb songs. They're just dumb. Looking back in hindsight, they're, in some ways they have these rousing, anthemic qualities, and you recognize why people would have gravitated toward that. But here's the thing. I've interviewed Simmons before. I've interviewed Paul Stanley. Those guys are smart guys. They're way smarter than they write, you know? I completely um, agree And with you. what's the deal? I mean, Simmons always sneered at the idea of art. Yeah. In so many words, saying it's about selling an image. A brand, you know, the, the brand as band is, I think you put it in your... 
as your, a fan, I completely disagree with him on that, but okay. it's his band. Yeah. And I've also interviewed him in the past too. Yeah. And he said, it's my band, not yours. Get your own band is what he told me. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, but I, I told him about the vinyl I bought at Ridgedale mall and I helped buy his Beverly Hills mansion. So yeah, I have right. a right for, to my opinion. You have right. Yeah. But, uh, I, you know, I agree with you that I think, uh, you know, their previous musical incarnation prior to Kiss was a band called yeah. Wicked Lester, which was flutes and five-part harmony yeah. and much more an affectation of late 60s, early 70s pop and psychedelia. And I think it bored them. I think they. I think you're right. I think they wanted to keep it simple, stupid. Kiss mm -hmm. the end. You know, I would tell you that. I mean, Jim and I have talked about this in the past. There's no doubt, uh, offensive lyrics in some of the songs. Mass, massive stupidity. The, a line like, "You're such, <laughs> you're such a jewel in the rough. I want to show you my stuff." I mean, like, yeah, who yeah, writes yeah. that? And Gene Simmons was an English teacher right. in I Spanish mean, Harlem in yeah, New right. York City, um, from Israel. From Israel, yeah. he's multilingual. I mean, yeah. these are not yeah, yeah, right. unintelligent people. Exactly. Um, but I gravitate towards Kiss one for the showmanship, two for the the, the mystique. You'd never saw their faces without makeup ever mm -hmm. when you were when I was a kid three for the rousing anthemic songs you speak of I mean mm -hmm. there's a an empowerment that they give to, mm -hmm. to a young listener when you're a little kid and you're like I, I, yeah I want to put my fist in the air too you know, mm -hmm. you're damn right <laughs> yeah. uh, so I don't I never gravitated nor understood um, you know, put your hand in my pocket, grab onto my rocket, spine tapian <laughs> BS. Um, I, Sam Weller, and, English uh, professor at Columbia College, <laughs> Chicago. Uh, you know, and now I look at it, and there's there's this oxymoronic quality to Kiss that there's a wink and a nudge sort of troglodyte cheese fest to them that is un completely understandable. I, 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 so so many so 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 many questions. Uh, All right, we had Bob Ezrin on. We had a fantastic conversation with Bob Ezrin, smart guy. Um, you know, uh, incredible resume as a producer. I don't think either of us. I, we didn't even think of asking him about Destroyer, Greg. Mm, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you wasn't know. high on our list of priorities that day. I will <laughs> grant you this. There is a certain uh, production, uh, uh, that album in particular. Yeah. If, I had to, if I had to, at gunpoint, <laughs> listen to one, at love gunpoint, gun to, to listen to one Kiss album, it would be that one. Sure. But I wouldn't last long. Well, and it's interesting. If I had the position the privileged position the two of you had, and I was sitting down with Bob Ezrin, I wouldn't ask him about Destroyer. I would ask him about Kiss's oft-maligned and much-hated 1981 concept album, Music from the Elder, which he also produced, <laughs> uh, which is probably my favorite Kiss album. Wow. I mean, it's kind of... Oh, no, wait a minute. Isn't Kiss it? attempting to do Rush. In this 30,000-word epic for <laughs> Pop Matters, you say... Kiss jumped the shark in 78. Oh, they did, but there's been merit <laughs> since. I mean, they, they did jump the shark, and I love the eras where they jumped the shark. Oh, I have wow. watched their the 1978 film, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, with my children. It's produced by Hanna-Barbera. It's yeah. terrible. <laughs> it's horrible. Paul and Gene can't, I mean, they can't yeah. even discuss it. They're so embarrassed by it. See, I, I, <laughs> I admire nothing. Greg and I admire nothing more than... Uh, uh, a pleasure that you should be 
be guilty about that you nevertheless wholeheartedly endorse? I mean, you know, I right? How many times, Greg? Oh, Smash yeah. Mouth. I always like Smash Mouth. I oh, like the Black Eyed Peas. Black you know, Eyed Peas, you know, yeah. Right. Well, you know, here's the thing. Ezrin being involved with the band, and it seemed like they they got, well, they had the hit. Yeah. The biggest hit of their career with Ezrin. Number right? seven. Yep. So that, to me, is an interesting trial by fire yeah. for the hardcore young Kiss fan who's into these rocking songs and then they come out with this kind of cheesy ballad beth sung by the drummer peter chris right (laughs) um and like whoa is that that's kiss just a few You know, I, as I said in my Pop Matters essay, I think that Destroyer initially perplexed the Camaro driving, bong hitting <laughs> beer crowd from and Detroit I can Rock to that City. To an yeah, I mean, yeah, we yeah. all can. I mean, after the show, that's what we're all doing, right? We're hopping in my Camaro. And, I like uh, it. You know, a part of my life was dazed and confused. Yeah. yeah. yeah you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, Richard yeah. Linklater, it's immortal. Yeah. It, when. The replacements cover Kiss, when Nirvana covers Kiss, when Tom Morello from Libertyville, Illinois, and Rage Against the Machine uh, inducts them into the, the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame. I mean, there's there's something you got to stop and say. There's something so wrong about a dyed-in-the-wool Marxist like Morello, you know, inducting the most capitalist rock band of all time. He's also friends with Ted Nugent, so how do we figure yeah, any of this yeah, out? Yeah, yeah. We, it is complicated. <laughs> Who is of the same era? The psyche of our what about yeah. Beth? What about it, though? What, 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 how did you respond to that? Like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, I think I'm an odd Kiss fan in that every, anything they handed me on a platter, <laughs> I sort of just took because I wasn't discerning enough as a music fan to critically uh, analyze it. And I thought, well, you know, as, as a creator myself, and my whole life I've been creative, I have always admired artists who do new things. And so if Kiss is just going to be three-chord, anthemic, dumbed-down, misogynistic songcraft, uh, they're never going to grow, and it's going to get tiresome. And so I think my initial response at eight or nine years old, whatever I was, to Beth was okay, this is a departure. I like, I've always liked departures from artists. Um, I like when, you know, it's the old Bowie quote, if you're in your comfort zone, you're not creating. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing yeah. poorly. But. Yeah. Sam is a brave man, articulating <laughs> his love for Kiss so well. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Sam about Kiss, and later we'll pay tribute to the late Sam Lay. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're talking all things Kiss with author and friend of the show, Sam Weller. Let's get back to the conversation. Let's tackle the misogyny, Sam. You use the word. Yeah, yeah. I find it fascinating that I am aware of four all-female Kiss cover bands. Wow, even I did not know that, Jim. So you, just you, you don't stumped. know any? Well, no, I, think I know. Two of them I, are in I, Chicago. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I knew of a couple, but I didn't know there were four of them. This, so, this is yeah. a thing. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it is interesting that some women are reclaiming uh, the power that is Kiss. I, I, I Maybe that's what they're I don't know. Maybe they just were the same age reading comic books like you. Uh, I don't know. But how do you now, as uh, as an educator, yeah. you know, you and I have been in how many diversity, equity, and inclusion <laughs> mm. seminars? It's true. It's true. It's true. It, it is indefensible. 
Yeah. And I'm also the father of three daughters, yeah. you know? And so you listen to these lyrics and, and I actually asked Gene Simmons that question myself. And he said, well, I, you know, I said, how do you reconcile your tabulation of groupie conquests with the fact that you have a daughter yourself? And he said, uh, well, I would never parent like that. And so it, I, that's kind of an, a crazy response. It's like he's maligning the parent for letting their girls out of that's the house. Ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, there are songs in the Kiss catalog that I, I, I honestly do not like because of the lyrics. Mm. I mean, there's some songs that I don't think they could ever play live again. A mm. song like, well, we're not going to keep parsing lyrics. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, you know, borderline hashtag Me Too issues going on with the lyrical oh, content. You know, but this. we could, and it's probably a little bit unfair of us to just, you know, malign Kiss for that. Because just of about course. every 70s hard Aerosmith. rock band. Well, even I mean, Queen. Had, Misogynist. No, uh, you know, Rolling Stones. Songs, you Rolling know, Stones, a band phone. Greg and I love. Right. Uh, uh, even the New York Dolls. And I thought it was some very interesting rock critic juxtaposition there in your yeah. essay. Uh, it was a fine line between the Dolls and Kiss. Yeah. Uh, they were they were on bills together. They were on magazine covers Absolutely. together. I would say the Dolls were far more revolutionary. Uh, you know, with their gender bending and yeah. uh, with David Johansson's deep, deep knowledge of rock history uh they weren't quite as silly as kiss no but i think they were camp i think you can and kiss was a cartoon right but i think you could say i i think it's undeniable that kiss was revolutionary in in their level of entertainment and performance showmanship yeah, the, the showmanship. theatricality yeah i mean i mean they, they alice did, cooper was doing they it, did pretty others. you know they created this amazing spectacle and yeah alice cooper probably got there first yeah. but they probably took it to the 10th degree uh so i get that point the other thing that is hard for me to stomach about Kiss is the relentless marketing. They they yes. turn if there was ever a turning point in like when you realize it was rock ink and not rock and roll anymore, it was it was like the Kiss formula like we're going to market that we're going to make lunch boxes, we're going to make, you know, Oh, Sam points out yeah. caskets. You yeah. can buy a Kiss casket, and you can buy Kiss birth control. Yeah. Oh, it, it, everything under the sun, right, has been got a Kiss logo on it, right? So there was that sort of the sort of crass business approach to it. And again, Simmons would laugh at me when I would ask him questions about that, like, "What's your, you know, what, what makes you so high and mighty, so pure? You know, there, no, there's nothing pure about rock and roll. It's a mongrel art form. You know, he's yeah, going yeah, on yeah, and on yeah, about that just... whole thing, and you can do whatever you want. So, how did you, as a, you know, sophisticated college professor, <laughs> now, are you going to endorse that and say that's that's cool? I still, I, I get behind that. You know, I collect very little by way of Kiss memorabilia. I do have a Kiss trash can in my Columbia <laughs> College office, but it's kind of a fitting metaphor for our conversation here. The way you're all approached trash aesthetic. <laughs> um, I don't collect all of that stuff, and I completely, again, vehemently disagree with uh, the aforementioned demon of Kiss, Gene Simmons. That this whole mantra of they're a brand, not a band, is just utter BS to me. I wanted the vinyl and I wanted to listen to the albums. And if I could go see them live, which I did in first time in 1979 with the original four members, I loved just the feeling of the empowerment of the rock and the 
Gibson Les Pauls and the Marshalls. I didn't care about so much the puzzles and the action figures, although I had those too because I was 10 years old. At the <laughs> time, right? You know, but I, I think it's, it's a disservice, actually. I know this sounds absurd, the artistic legacy of Kiss. That sounds completely op- oxymoronic. But to continue to hammer home this, we're a brand, not a band yeah. mantra, um, I think two of the original members partially went off the rails because they couldn't deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, Ace Frehley, who was yeah. my favorite member of Kiss, I think. The star his, man. The space man. I mean, he's, oh, okay. he's I think, <laughs> his, his um, guitar playing is reflective of, you know, a sloppy Dirty yeah. Jimmy Page and some Chuck Berry noodling and and no, but it's his good. Solo, his solo, his solo he, album is his solo is album is song. excellent. I will say that I think he he disagreed completely and mm-hmm. I think the drug usage mm. of Peter Chris and Ace Frehley uh, came into play because of the sort of as they splintered off and became this marketing enterprise. Yeah. Um, but you know when you're four guys wearing kabuki makeup and comic book costumes, you can see how their manager saw opportunity More. in money. Freely and Chris. 2021 documentary Kiss Story, yeah, A I S S Tory, right? Um, you know, so Louie and Tony in my band also share my disdain for Kiss, but they were drunk, and so they watched this uh, just last weekend, and um, you know, they, they they thought the funniest part of it was, you know, there's a, there's an afterward uh, a Chiron, uh, Ace Freely and Peter Chris disagree with everything in this documentary and had nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of the hilarity is those guys just can't make peace with each other. And it's mm. so freaking sad. It was four dudes from New York City yeah. who came together in a loft on, I think, the fourth floor of 10 East 23rd. I went up there three years ago before the pandemic and went there myself. Yeah. Snuck yeah. into the building. It's in the story. Yeah. A, 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 a guy working in a building. Let me in. Inside. He yeah. let me in. And the, the fact that, you know, to me, to a KISS fan, that's the, liv- that's the Liverpool, that's the Cavern Club mm-hmm. to a KISS fan. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know that's like blasphemy to you guys. <laughs> Rush loves KISS. Brian May loves KISS. I mean, you know, there's lots of people who love KISS. So um, that documentary, you know, I don't know whether you watched it, Greg, or not, probably not, right? No, no, no I, mean, I didn't miss um, that one. You know, I think that Gene and Paul were as honest as they've ever been yeah. in that documentary. They were actually, there was a little bit of God forbid there was some humility in those wow. in them. Wow. So that came through. Because they're I, 70 something. Right. Yeah. I think I think, you know, the same as I saw with Ray Bradbury, there's a, a recognition of of uh, the last chapters of life and you become a Mortality. bit more yeah, you yeah. become a bit more humble. No, I, exactly. I mean, um, our friend Jan Uhelski yes. did this extensive interview with uh, both Stanley and uh, and Simmons for the Cream documentary and I saw the outtakes. They, they only were able to use you know, Paul Stanley comes across as a very, you know, introspective, smart guy. Simmons is more full of himself, and he, you know, offering opinions about stuff that he has no business, you know, 
opining about. But the point being, there there was there was some you know clearly some intelligence there. Their well, ability they, 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 to sort of you know before you get off channel, yeah. there also was a period where they laughed at themselves. You know. Oh yeah, that's Jan what I'm going to get. Yeah, is famous for you know I dreamed I was in uh, in Kiss yeah. in my maiden form bra, and, and that's they a great. They let her dress up as as a member of Kiss, and that's a great piece. They yeah. they had fun with it, and they yeah. were having fun yeah. doing this. And at the same time, Gene and Paul. Gene especially had this sort of business sense. Like when you think about something like Black Sabbath, you know, those guys had zero business sense. They were just happy to get out of, fa- of a factory job in yeah, England, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then they finally found a manager who was going to like freaking, you know, figure out how to, how to make this pay off so that you guys can have a living doing this. I mean, Gene and Paul were like that, you know, they had a vision for what this could be and how much money they could make. And at a certain point, you realize the band brand thing, that's real. These guys were kind of like ahead of their time in that they did turn it into a business almost instantly, you know? Yeah. And, and that's either either really smart or that's just really like, ugh. Insidious. Ew. You know, it's but like... But I, I also think that, you know, as I said in my, my essay, it's only 11,000 words, by the 11, way. 30,000. Right. <laughs> right. It's epic. I mean... Epic was the key The Great word. Gatsby is 53,000 words. <laughs> 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 right. Is that right? Uh, yeah. God, that's a, that's a revelation. Wow. No Fahrenheit idea. 451, 50,000 words. It's yeah. not wow. 30,000 words. Wow. All right. Um, okay. But, Sorry. you know, they have their, I would argue, their bona fides in... in early rock and roll they toured in a station wagon for three years with mm. their road crew yeah hard scrabble uh you know s- wearing sweaty leather bat costumes and space <laughs> costumes you know uncleaned for weeks um they i, I they would argue they dues. paid their rock dues. Uh, yeah and that, i think that that comes through in every story i've read about kiss is that they clearly they it took a while for them to to connect you know, uh, and figure out what they wanted to do, how they wanted to present themselves, and more power to them. But there's a lot of bands who do that and then continue to make music that's, Agreed. you know, packed with integrity and gets actually gets better. Uh, <laughs> like they get better at what they do. Like we can do something with this as an art form. And Kiss never sort of aspired to that, which is, okay, it, it is just a freaking, it might as well be McDonald's, you know? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. But I think what's also fascinating about KISS is that every era, there's something that KISS fans can find to latch onto and argue about and have an opinion on. Mm-hmm. There's so many different chapters to that band's legacy. The makeup, the no makeup, the different members. But are are there kind of fascinating. fans who came on board yes. in the no makeup era? Oh, yeah. There's fans who prefer really? the 80s, which is not my, although I would also argue, there's <laughs> some merit to found. One could argue that their last album with makeup, Creatures of the Night, uh, is a thunderous hard rock album. It's their return, probably, arguably, their hardest album. And wow. the, the drum production, it's the second album with their, their second drummer, Eric Carr, who was the Fox. That was his persona. <laughs> and he, he was a Brooklyn oven repairman who they wanted an unknown wow. because of the makeup and the mystique. Yeah. And they hired and they, him. And they no doubt paid him less. 
I think they probably paid him, but they gave him a Porsche upon signing the contract. Mm. So he was in. He Cadillac was a records. thunderous like Leonard just yeah, Leonard off Muddy Waters. Do you want records, the yeah. royalty check? Yeah. Or do you want this Cadillac car? <laughs> Behind the car, car we're yeah. not going to pay you. <laughs> right, right. Um, that's a thunderous album. So that's the beginning. That's the last makeup album of the 80s. Absolutely great record. Yeah, but they, you know, you see those pictures of them on MTV yes. without makeup. Yes. There is no sadder picture in rock history. That is a sorry-looking group of middle-aged Well, and then they flipped back to the, to the makeup, because I thought, you know, my impression of that era, Sam, was that it, they thought it was a bust. Like, they, they made this yeah. move, try, I don't know, for whatever, like, shake up the formula, well, we you we got to do something new. And we got to do something new, and the fans didn't like it. They, they no, I don't like think it. that's true. I think their second highest charting song came out on an album called Hot in the Shade in the late okay. 80s called Forever. And it's a mm. power ballad. And it's straight from the pages of Bon Jovi and Poison and hair all these metal. power hair metal power ballads. Right. I, it was a digression into hair metal. I think Gene Simmons has said very vocally that he really struggled with his image during that era. Yeah. It is cringy to look at certain tour pictures, <laughs> uh, no doubt. And I was thrilled when they reunited. Yeah. Um, and put on the makeup. And put the makeup and okay. costumes back on. But, you know, the 80s, there are, as you said, there are fans who just favor that era. Well, I didn't it. say that. I asked yeah. it and you said yeah. yes. And I'm, I'm still, still shocked filling, by that. They're still filling the stadiums with something. Well, well, so so Sam, at the end of this uh, uh, not quite 30,000 word, <laughs> merely 12,000 word essay, you offer, uh, there is plenty of, of criticism in, in your piece, and, and we've been having fun with you because yeah, Greg yeah, and I, I, who else are we going to argue with Kiss about, right? Tom uh, Morello, I mean. <laughs> Tom Morello, I guess. Yeah, I'd rather talk to him about why he was wrong about the Red Hand Maoist <laughs> movement, um, which I have. Um, the... You, you suggest three possible ends for this band. Yes. They uh, listened to none of them. <laughs> and they, they listened to none. They didn't listen to their number one fan. Uh, you wanted to see them go out literally in a blaze of glory uh, with one final show with the makeup, yeah? I think that's still possible. You know, prior to COVID, they had scheduled a show at a venue to be named later in New York City. Hmm. There was lots of conjecture. And back Jean's, to their roots. Back to their roots. Full circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of, there, there's a very vocal fan community online where mm. people are all offering their opinions. KISS fans are the most opinionated bunch of rock fans. I mean, it's, 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 it's insane. We may be asking mm. for trouble here. Though, yeah. You usually might. it's whenever we talk about Rush, which is always complimentary and yet it's never complimentary enough. Oh, right. But yeah. no, I understand that, and I'm totally willing to take the heat. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know? We we are. Uh, so so, uh, but with you know, so which iteration did you want to see with one well, final New York you know, show and makeup? I, I think the best case scenario, but it's impossible, is if we're going to go full circle, you've mm-hmm. got to have the two original members back in some capacity for that last show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they've got to come out and at least play three songs together. But it, from the from all appearances, original drummer Peter Chris has retired and hates them. Yeah. They hate him. It, 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 you know, they all say they're a family and they bicker and they love each other. But... Um, <laughs> 
Ace seems to be kind of begging to be back. Mm. Um, he's now opening for Alice Cooper, go figure, on the mm. road presently. But to me, they need to conclude as they began. When, when Ace was uh, too drugged out to play sometimes, they, they tapped Cooper veteran Steve Hunter, or was it Wagner or Hunter? Dick, Dick Wagner. Wagner. Dick yeah. Wagner. Yeah, yeah, play, yeah, yeah, he played a solo on From Destroyer. the Cooper album yeah. and Rock and Roll Animal by mm-hmm. Lou Reed. Right, right, exactly. Because Ezrin had produced both of them, obviously. Uh, the so. Ezrin connection. Um, so I think in some incarnation, the original band should should close the final curtain. They have an opportunity to do what few bands do. If this is legitimately their last show, which does anybody really believe given the brand Nobody and marketing? Um, but they, they really could go out if they just said, this is truly it. I mean, Gene Simmons does make an argument that he's 71 years old, wearing 40 pounds of armor, breathing fire. <laughs> How much longer can the guy physically do that? Yeah, right. right? It's crazy. And so they can go out like no band, get the four original members, at least to play the encore together. And get one of the female Kiss cover bands to open. Right Now that would be, you know. Love it. You know, really, anybody with the makeup could be Kiss. I think they're talking about a Kiss 2.0 now. I mean, they've they've brought that up. That yeah, there will be a reality it? show where they themselves <laughs> pick their replacements. Um, All right. So, oh well, God. we finally have figured it out. I think Sam we have Weller has an end game for Kiss. That, yeah. A pretty very logical uh, conclusion to his storied love of, affair with this band. The only way to end it, like you're breaking up with them in some ways, but you're there's one final date, right, in your future. You one, don't have a kiss casket, do you? I will never succumb to that. There's just no way. <laughs> no they, way. they at the end of the show, they could each get into one of the kiss caskets. I like it. And the lids closed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the caskets could lower on fade hydraulic. to black, and then kiss <laughs> and two then point the flames oh, go the winners up, of the reality know. show come out and they play the rest of the set. You know, I, I know they didn't like the piece I wrote for Pop Matters because I wrote it. And generally, if if there's a piece of any piece of media that is even remotely pro-KISS, they share it on their own social media accounts. Wow. And, the, and the fans, interestingly enough, understood what I was trying to say because mm-hmm. it was while I, I, I was critical yeah. uh, and and made fun of them, mm-hmm. uh, I also was celebratory of them. And the, I... Only 100% positivity from fans, but hmm. never, never any sort them. of sharing from them, which is unusual. All right, all right. Well, we can't let you go without one bigger philosophical <laughs> question, all right? So I have long maintained as a critic, and I think Greg agrees with much of this, you know, uh, nostalgia is the kiss of death. And uh, I think any piece of criticism that begins with, you really had to be there. Whether it's Louding Woodstock, I've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. I, I've been to raves in the mud in Wisconsin that were way better musically. Aphex Twin playing, Daft Punk playing, right? Better than Richie Havens, okay? Anything that begins, you really had to be there. Is it an inescapable fact, um, you know, that this hit you at eight, nine? Uh, you had to be there, you were there. You know, I, I know exactly where you're going with this question, because the first time you and I really talked about KISS in depth was in the hallway where we both teach as professors at Columbia College. And you said, this is a nostalgia thing. It's going back to your childhood. Mm-hmm. You, were, you, were, you were psychoanalyzing me in the hallway at Columbia College. <laughs> um, and certainly, I think we all, as Ray Bradbury, and everything connects in my life to Ray Bradbury, yes. would say we all have a root system. It's your that brain. That root system you know. is, our chi- mm. is our childhood. Yeah. That's where our root 
word system begins and our, our aesthetic begins mm-hmm. when we're children and it, it expands and grows and blossoms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly, I, I like much more music than just, you know, kiss. Yes. Goodness. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a nostalgia element, but you know, I, I brought that nostalgia full circle as well. I brought my three daughters to see kiss in 2019. Uh, and that's the last time I'll ever see them. They're coming back to Chicago, the never ending mm-hmm. end of the road tour. Yeah. I'm not going to go. I brought my three kids and that's it. And what did they think? Um, you know, it's interesting. They loved the spectacle of it. I think mm-hmm. it, I bought them noise reducing headphones. It was loud. It was cacophonous. And, and I think it was probably too long for them. Mm-hmm. There were some long winded, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Early Kiss songs have some long-winded guitar soloing. I think that was... But any time someone was flying somewhere, (laughs) a flash pot was exploding. Jeans coming out by them on a hydraulic lift. They're loving it, you know? Man. Yeah, well, you know, NSYNC flew in when I saw them, too. But they wouldn't have flown in if it weren't for Kiss. Okay. All right. Thank you, Sam Weller, for having the uh, courage to uh, talk about KISS. Uh, All in good fun there. And all hate mail should be directed only to me and Greg Codd, (laughs) not Sam Weller. Please, no. Thanks, guys. Hit it! That wraps up our discussion on KISS, and now we want to hear from you. Are you a KISS super fan, or are you allergic to the band completely, or are you somewhere in between? Share your thoughts with us via message on our website, soundopinions.org. Now, Jim, we want to pivot to talking about one of the great drummers. Man, listen to that man in action, Greg. Sam Lay. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Sam Lay, one of the great drummers uh, of all time. Probably not a household name, but he should be. He died January 29th at age 86. You know, when I first became fully aware of how impactful uh, Sam Lay was and is, uh, you know, I interviewed Iggy Pop. And he told me about the days that he came down to Chicago to, you know, firsthand witness these blues giants performing. And they indulged him. When he was still uh, Jimmy Osterberg from Michigan. Jimmy Osterberg from Michigan comes down a teenager. He's forming his own, you know, blues-based band. He wants to learn from the masters. And he's a drummer. And he hangs out and he goes, of all the giants that he met, you know, Muddy, Howlin' Wolf, uh, you know, he he saw them all. Uh, He said, Sam Lee was the guy. Yeah, I was really enamored with the way Sam carried himself, the way he dressed, the way he talked to me. You know, it was incredibly influential in the way he developed his sound and his approach to music. The way he dressed, right, with a walking stick and right. a cape, right? Yeah. Is yeah. that what the <laughs> Sam Sam came prepared. I mean, he was dressed to the nines. You know, he could be playing a funky club on the south side or the west side, and he would still look like, uh, you know, a guy who just walked out of GQ or something like that, right? Love it. Yeah, he was uh, an incredibly stylish man and an incredibly stylish drummer. I know you appreciate him because he was not one of those guys who put, like, a thumbprint on every song. Oh, that's the Sam Lay drum sound. But those shuffles that he played uh, were, were integral to so many blues records. Born in Alabama, came to Chicago in the 50s, started out with Lil Walter, that's yeah. not bad. Muddy That's Waters debut. <laughs> Muddy Waters hires him in 1960. Muddy Waters could have worked with any drummer yeah. in Chicago. He could have snapped his fingers, I want you. He picked Sam Lay as the guy he wants to work with. And Sam was in Muddy's band for the next six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then returned 
to work with Muddy on one of the the best selling record, best selling Muddy Waters record anyway, on Chess Records, Fathers and Sons in 1969. That mm-hmm. was his post. Remember the Electric Mud record? Right. This was the follow up back to sort of more of a traditional back style to Muddy's for Muddy. Yeah. I'm going to show you how nice a man can be. And in fact, you know, if you listen to the Fathers and Sons records, you, you, you see him presaging what he would do with Johnny Winter in the 70s for the final big comeback of Muddy's career. But Sam was that kind of guy. He played with everybody. Willie Dixon, Howlin' Wolf, Eddie Taylor, John Lee Hooker, Junior Wells, Bo Diddley, Magic Sam, Jimmy Rogers, Earl Hooker. You know, 40-plus albums, record recordings with, with chess alone. Paul Butterfield. The first Butterfield album. Exactly. Here's My. this guy coming down to pick a drummer, and <laughs> Sam Lay is the guy he, you know, that, that worked with him. Think about Sam as being kind of a bridge between that blues sound in Chicago and 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 rock. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you think about the influence he had on Iggy and the way he thought about the Stooges, for example, when you think about the Paul Butterfield thing. Listen to those um, rhythms on that first Stooges yeah. album. And it all came from church, Greg. Why I said gospel Sam is that double-time clapping, right, right? right? You know, the shuffle. They... Everybody called it a shuffle, right? right? That's lazy, but it's more than that. It's like a, a skip beat. It's a, right. it's a, you know, and it has a lot to do with Bo Diddley as well. It, it was beautiful. Yeah, you break down the hand clapping uh, and, and in those, on those gospel records, that's Sam Lay's that's what Sam style, Lay's right? When the whole church is yeah. getting into it. And let's face it, you know, historic, talk about a Zelig-like career, you know, working with Muddy, working with Little Walter, working with Howlin' Wolf. Yep. You know, Paul Butterfield, you know, Paul Butterfield's on the on the on the um, cover of Time Magazine, right? Yeah. This is how important yeah. this van- band was viewed as sort of this biracial blues rock band in Chicago in the mid-60s. Um, here's Dylan going electric. Who's the drummer yeah. at Newport when the, the world was raging? Like, what is yeah. Dylan doing, you know? Uh, Sam Lay. How, how did that happen? You know, uh, the fact that he, he Bloomfield was, was working okay. with Dylan very closely on, on the uh, uh, Highway 61 Revisited record. Right. In fact, Sam played drums on the title track of Highway 61. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and so it was a natural fit for Bloomfield to bring in his pal, uh, you know, Sam, to play drums in this historic um, moment in, yep. in, in music history. I mean, there's pre- Newport yeah. Dillon, <laughs> yeah. and there's post-Newport yeah. Dillon, and yeah. you can divide rock history in that way. Sam was there at that moment being that drummer. How does it feel? How does it feel? To be on your own With no direction home. And again, I think that speaks to his whole career, bridging those uh, those genres, being able to do yeah. that as a drummer. And then, you know, finishing out his career in, in recent years, he's been playing with the Siegel Schwal Band, mm. a revered uh, Chicago blues band uh, that uh, Sam continued to work in. So uh, ever since the 50s, basically, Sam has been continuously working for somebody, playing in somebody's blues band. Well, 86, uh, A Good Life, Sam Lay, shuffling into the there beyond. Uh, what do we have on the show next week, Greg? 
Next week, Jim, we have a fascinating discussion about an artist that we have been talking about uh, for a number of, of years, decades, in fact, with uh, some of our friends, Questlove and Common. Yep. Now we're going to find out about Jay Dilla and dive deep into his career. That is going to be a great one, Greg. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal, and our social media consultant, Katie Cott.